when we start debating more like people than ideas, so if someone says, I have this much experience, or why don't you trust me, or anything like that, when we're debating or reversing a decision or anything like that, that is really more about person than the work. And I don't, I almost never want to comment about the person, <laughs> like really, ever. <laughs> I only want to talk about the work. I only want to talk about the ideas. But often if we've worked really hard on something, it can feel like we're being personally attacked or personally reproached when the idea is reversed or undone or debated or we're asked to defend it. So cultivating that detachment from it is just, I think, a lifelong process. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. So it was 2003. Matt Mullenweg was 19 years old. He was a freshman at the University of Houston, and he started working on this product, one that we know now synonymous with blogs around the world. It's called WordPress. And so this product ended up getting some traction. Eventually, he ended up dropping out of school shortly after this. And by 2005, he moved to San Francisco to pursue this world in tech. Now he's got one of the biggest remote-first companies in the world, a very large distributed team. The company is Automatic. They're the company behind WordPress, WooCommerce, Jetpack, SimpleNote, the list goes on. They're a distributed team of more than 2,000 people in 97 countries, speaking more than 120 languages around the world. And the common goal is to democratize publishing and commerce so that anyone with a story can tell it. What does this have to do with levels? Well, as a remote team, Matt and his crew of automaticians, as they call themselves, more than 2,000 people, they do a lot of communicating and they're very much asynchronous in nature in the way that they are set up as a remote company. In an average week, they might send more than 800,000 different messages, lots of different comments, maybe 15,000. Where do these numbers come from? Well, on their website, they've got this sense of ongoing work. Last week alone, there were 845,933 messages with 14,756 comments. It's a lot of communication overhead. How do they manage it? Well, when it comes to what we are trying to learn, what we're trying to get better at, it has to do a lot with being async and remote. So Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, he sat down with Matt and they dug into this idea of scaling teams remotely. How do you coordinate? How do you provide information and maintain this sense of being async? Well, you can be as async as possible, but no more. At least that's the way that Matt says it. Anyway, no need to wait. Here's a conversation with Matt and Sam. We're just over 50 people now. We've been fully remote from day one. Most of the questions are related to scaling remote teams. And I know you guys are really some of the OGs of, uh, of remote work. I'm uh, curious to learn, uh, to see around some of the corners and see if there are any sort of, uh, any, any solutions that you figured out 
that we that could address some of the problems that we have right now. I will say it's a historical document, so not currently accurate. Mm-hmm. But there was an author named Scott Berkman who joined Automatic when we were around forty-five or fifty people. Mm. Wrote a book book about his next one or two years. Oh no, kidding! I got to check that out. It's called The Year Without Pants. Some of the stuff is not as relevant now. Like we were definitely a little more like um, a little more of a culture that like hung out and drank a lot yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Like a little more. I would even call it bro forward back then, mm-hmm. um, which isn't us now, but just for like a point in time when we were in literally an identical spot that you're in. This is more of a tactical question. So we we have found that uh, the concepts of remote and async are are pretty strongly intertwined. My exposure to other companies that try going remote, but don't also embrace async, it ends up being just a lot worse. You just spend a lot of time. I think you you mentioned this on a podcast that I listened to of like, kind of get the worst of both worlds. And this hybrid intermediate step is, uh, is pretty brutal. Um, how, how async is, uh, automatic as async as possible and no more. Okay. So I think that Synchronous is really beautiful. So when I when I say that we try to be as async as possible, it, I don't mean to um, downplay any of the incredible value of like what we're doing right now. Right. Because if this were, I think of a lot around network architecture, like if our ping times, <laughs> to mm-hmm. each other, like if I send you a center and act, and that took, you know, five minutes to come back, um, that would slow the rate at which we can iterate on our ideas together in this conversation. So, but let's make sure that we uh, focus that sync time um, to create something that's really valuable, like this conversation, or uh, that we have all, we both have the information that we want beforehand so that our conversation isn't just catching up, it's more like the the debate or discussion. for something like this, it's actually good because the information you want is essentially my life I have lived <laughs> and your questions are all the life you have lived. So we're both like fully caught up. But let's say this was about like some aspect of our product and you knew it really well and I didn't. It wouldn't be as a productive of a conversation if it was, you know, this widget over here and I didn't really know that widget that well. So I think um, getting everyone to the same sort of baseline understanding sounds simple, but is actually really, really hard. And, um, and it's worth checking in like, Hey, I heard you say X, Y, Z, that means Z or whatever. And, um, and then going back and using that same time for when it's most useful and then asynchronous. The other nice thing about asynchronous is that it is usually recorded like asynchronous is usually oh. around forever so right. for us that's uh p2 wordpress.com slash p2 which is our internal blogging system which is like our internal blockchain almost like a blog chain you could call it where like every mm-hmm. comment is the um organizational blockchain of every decision that's been made in the company you know including like offhand ones and really long essays and treatises. And they're all permalinked, they're all addressable, they're all composable, if you will, from a programming point of view, which is really, really useful, especially 
um, when you're trying to figure out why something happened a certain way years later, which if you're successful, you will be. <laughs> there'll be a bunch right. of new people who weren't there and they'll be like, hey, why is this door red? <laughs> because nothing else in this room is red and, and you're going to have to like, be, it's nice to have an indexed uh, record of, of how that conversation happened and why that decision was arrived at. Yeah, that actually uh, neatly ties into two of the other topics that I wanted to cover. Uh, one is around context collapse and information filtering, and the other is around communication mediums. Mm -hmm. um, the I'll, I'll start with the, the context collapse problem, where I think we started to really feel this around maybe 40 employees. That was the time when it was no longer possible for everyone to know what everyone else was doing. And you could just spend all day, every day, just reading up on what other people were doing at the company and not doing any work. And uh, it started to get really stressful for people. And uh, we had a good conversation with Darren Murph from GitLab, who uh, he reframed it as, do people ever complain about there being too much information on the internet? And the answer is no. <laughs> that means you don't have a, a volume of content problem. You have an information filtering problem. Uh, and that was a helpful reframing. Uh, but we still haven't solved that problem. <laughs> I love that reframing, by the way. Go, Darren. I'm curious as you're on a much larger scale than we are. So I'm sure you've, you've come up with some mechanisms and systems. So understanding, um, how, how do, uh, how do you figure out what information should be available to each person, pushed to each person, discoverable by what teams, um, when somebody writes a 5,000 word memo, how do you ensure that the people who need that information get it? effectively in a synthesized way. Um, we're, we're just, we're just starting to bump up against this problem. And, uh, I imagine it's only going to get, I think it actually gets polynomially worse as we add more people. Yeah. Blessed be the curators, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think that it becomes really important. Um, the greatest gift you can give to your colleagues is, um, great summaries. You know, and, and we have a few people in our organization uh, that do just just for fun, like they read a ton of stuff and then they make like a little news weekly newsletter or, yeah. or like, you know, collect their links. So things that people do on the Internet, you can do within your company. And if someone has a predilection to that, um, that is both an incredibly helpful and incredibly powerful position in the company to be the one that reads a ton of stuff and then like distills it down and saves everyone else a ton of time because now in terms of accessibility, I like for it all to be fully accessible. So if I want to go read that 5,000 word thing, I should be able to click on it and get to it. So in terms of access control, I tend to err on the side of um, within the company, any, every link always works. Right. Uh, but, you know, I've definitely clicked on those and loaded them and sometimes see like, a long post with like a hundred comments on it. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> so we have a we have two um sort of what's what's the word? Abbreviations that we use a lot in automatic. 
uh, TLDR, which is very common, you know, too long, didn't read. So that's a nice thing to put at the top. So we do that as like a convenience, or sometimes we'll summarize a thread and pin a comment to the top of P2 that says like, this was kind of like where this all ended up. Uh, sometimes I'll ask people to reply to something at the very end, because often scrolling to the bottom is good to see like what the latest thing is, and just say, hey, this, we ended up XYZ, or here's the latest version of this, just so there's always a, um, a path to the latest information or the best information. I call this Yellow Arrows, inspired by the uh, Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrimage trail, a um, couple hundred miles, I think. There's a lot of different ways you could take, but like it's going through cities and countrysides and everything. So there's like lots of wrong turns you can take. And so just over the years, people painted these yellow arrows on trees, walls, and everything. <laughs> And sometimes you'll turn someplace and the yellow arrow will point the other way. And so <laughs> there's never, it's not like a committee that painted all these. It's literally yeah. been, you know, hundreds of people walking, hundreds of people taking wrong turns. And so if you ever take a wrong turn, you know, you can leave your little yellow arrow, which is usually a link to the place where you found out you were looking for. Right. And that's what I love about hypertext versus like, like, it's not like you can put a copy of your keys every place you look for your keys. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right. but online, if you look five different places for, to find this like particular metric, like you can link it from all those places pretty easily. And yeah. I try to, you know, remind people like if it's just text, like let's update it frequently and make it very easy to update. Yeah, I, I think redundancy in in text in digital medium is, uh, is something that is uh, is underappreciated. There, there's no cost to adding a link. And so uh, it's it's really easy to be, to keep things redundant and just linking things together as a ton of value. Um, we, we were talking about uh, context collapse and information filtering, and mm -hmm. uh, the 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 synthesizer or uh, curator role uh, is that there there are companies like I know Amazon uh, they have many many more internal comms people than you see at other similar uh, technology companies. I think part of the reason for that is their culture around externalizability in AWS. So my guess is that their internal comms people sort of also function as marketing people to some degree, because they are effectively, when you write a PR FAQ, it's kind of the same thing as your marketing function. Um, but I, I wonder, do you, have you ever formalized this role of uh, of curator, or has it just been something that happens organically? We do have various reportings that bubble up. So they naturally kind of feed into each other, almost like tributaries of information that feed into a larger river. And you can just watch the river and get a lot of the, uh, the gist of it. So some things that are regular cadences for us is that um, we ask pretty much every team to do an every other week update. Oh, actually, sorry, weekly, Thursday. We call them Thursday updates because we used to do them all yeah. Thursdays, but then we naturally spread them out throughout the week. Sure. It was a little intense. So some do them on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but they're still historically called Thursday updates. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this is meant to be a summary of, uh, of your group's work that's relevant for the rest and you know, jargon-free and understandable for the rest of the company. So someone who's not working on everything every day, can they um, see what you did? Our design group has been leading something they call snaps, which are basically visual versions of this. So showing like a before and after. 
which is also really great. Um, these also bubble up to like monthly investor updates, which we share with the whole company, you know, do it for external, do it for the internal. Um, we also share our board meetings and other sort of external communications to stakeholders with um, with everyone internally. And that process, the nice thing, if you do it right, it's not always perfect, but if you do it right, these things, the small things make the big things easier. So like the, the summaries get easier and easier because you can look at the, the summary of the summary essentially and say, okay, of these 30 things, here's the 10 that were most interesting. Yeah, and, and one of the other topics related to the kind of culture of transparency and communication, um, I, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about how different media affects the way that people perceive information. Mm -hmm. um, I had a really good podcast with uh, David Perel, who's the, the writing guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he thinks a lot about writing. And I also had a conversation with Vinay from Loom, who thinks a lot about video as a medium. We've been doing a lot of experimentation with writing versus video versus all these different uh, mechanisms for communicating in an asynchronous way. And we, we find ourselves increasingly gravitating to, uh, to video for things like updates and the TLDRs and certain types of communication. And there's a certain degree of, um, of interpersonal, I, I really think it's something lizard brained about seeing a human face and yeah. uh, somebody's tongue that really goes a long way towards, uh, these building that trust and confidence in other people. So, um, the, you, your, your company has been around for a long time since before a lot of these video tools were common. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious how, how, if at all, you've embraced some of these tools and if, if that's something that you thought much about. This is an area where I'll say that we're also evolving. I would say that we are very text heavy. Oh, and to an earlier point, um, writing ability, it's hard to screen for reading ability, but you can screen for writing ability quite easily. Sure. And that is a fantastic thing to screen for and hire. There's almost no downside <laughs> um, to looking for good writers in your hiring process. Uh, we, we are starting to use Loom and short videos. And in fact, this has led me to push our internal video product to have like um, uh, captioning and easy speed up and stuff like that. Um, it's, uh, I 100% agree with you. The only downside I personally experience is that if I'm like trying to catch up on things on my phone, like in line, if you don't have that audio, if you don't have the AirPods, it's um, it's not as accessible. A accessible. Yeah. But, um, other than that, and maybe with auto captioning, that'll all go away. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it does feel like one of those things where as long as you can speed it up, I think it's fine. Because yeah. it is true that I think we can consume information faster than you or I naturally talk as humans. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's actually, I've seen data on this. that I think where, where a typical audiobook and speed at which the average person reads when that converges is around somewhere between three and three and a half X um, mm. speed of watching a video, which is much faster than most people can, <laughs> can in, input information. 
if you want your mind blown, there's also um, people who are blind, apparently parts of their brain gets reassigned to the audio processing and they can understand sped up audio at things that are totally illegible to you or I uh, yeah. at like 20 or 26 syllables per second. Mm. Uh, and I'll send you a link to this. You can share with the team later. Yeah, yeah. To listen to because it sounds, it's, you can read the text that they're speaking and uh -huh. then you hear it and you're like, wow. But people can actually totally understand that, which sure. is probably what like, if we played a 3X podcast to our grandparents, they'd be like, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of like training. Like yeah. brain, the brain is incredibly malleable and they do amazing things. Yeah, definitely. I have one other, another tactical question um, of managing organizational complexity, specifically related to decision-making. Um, this is something a lot of founders that I've talked to who reach this scale of around 50 people, uh, decision-making processes start to break um, in the call it pre-25 people stage. The decision-making process was basically People come to me as the CEO with an idea, and then I decide whether we do it. And then that's the whole process. <laughs> and we are now at a point where I am no longer the person who has the most context on making decisions. And so we need to push that decision-making up the tree to more of the edges so that people with the most context can make the best decisions. Um, and so I, I'm curious on like a very tactical level, uh, I think philosophically, I've read a lot about how you think about decision-making as an organization where you want it to be as close to the edge. as close to the edge as possible. And we're very much aligned with that. Um, so I'm, I'm, this is less of a philosophical question and more of like a practical question. If, if one of your, if a PM on the team has an idea for a thing, what, what happens next and how how do these decisions get made? How do conflicts get resolved? And how do resourcing trade-offs get handled? Yeah, I think the important thing there is to break down the word decision into different types of decisions. And particularly, I like to talk about reversible versus irreversible decisions. Right. And um, in the realm of irreversible decisions, taking an investor, you know, like, and the truth is it's a continuum. Like if you took the wrong investor, you could buy them out. It's just, that's a hard thing to do, you know, versus we can all think of easily reversible decisions, like many things in technology, like changing right. color things or multivariant tests. So um, along that continuum, you want to, I think, have a uh, speed. And I think where organizations fail is where they make reversible decisions slowly. So, right. Uh, or where they make reversible decisions without a feedback loop. So, if you imagine yourself making these reversible decisions quickly and with some sort of feedback loop, um, you're in the best possible place for getting to the right answer. Uh, the hardest thing about this, I would say, is reminding yourself of it and two, um, identity. So, it's and I still struggle with this today, especially in the open source side of things, is that when we start debating more like people than ideas, so if someone says, I have this much experience, or why don't you trust me, or anything like that, yep. and when we're debating or reversing a decision or anything like that, that 
is really more about the person than the work. And I don't, I almost never want to comment about the person, <laughs> like really ever. <laughs> I only want to talk about the work. I only want to talk about the ideas. Uh, but often if we've worked really hard on something, it can feel like we're being personally attacked or personally reproached when the idea is uh, reversed or undone or debated or we're asked to defend it. So um, cultivating that detachment from it is just, I think, a lifelong process. And by the way, I, I make that same mistake too. <laughs> just do it because I'm the CEO, you know. Uh -huh. It still happens, uh, still, <laughs> 17 years later. It's not perfect, but just keep that in mind. And if you ever find a discussion is going off, it's a good question to ask. Like, oh, did this switch from being about the idea to maybe being about ourselves? And if so, how can we uh, reverse that? And say like, hey, we're all in this together. We all work together. <laughs> we're all get the paycheck from the same place. We're on the same team. Um, this, you know, let's just figure out the best thing for our customers or users or process or efficiency or whatever. Yeah. One of the, the problems we're, we're doing better at it now, but I don't think we solve this is uh, we, we have had situations where we had agreement on whatever the decision was in terms of like, yes, we should do a thing. And uh, I'm thinking of one project in particular that went off the rails because we gave the person the thumbs up to do the project, but we didn't resource the project uh, explicitly. And so this person had this mandate and this expected outcome, but not the resources to deliver on it. And it just created incredible frustration um, and conflict between them and other business units. So how do you, when it comes to that kind of decision-making, uh, I imagine, do we want to do the thing is something you have to decide. What are the resources needed to do it? And are we allocating them? Are there any other things that like, we really need to take into consideration to make sure these things are done successfully? I'm sure we have also made that mistake hundreds of times, literally. Um, so don't beat yourself up about it. It's probably going to happen regardless. Yeah. Uh, I think that's just a function of communication. So if you're saying yes to this, this means X, Y, Z. I personally avoid the term resourcing or resources um, because I feel like that level of abstraction sometimes allows us to not really think about what's needed. Um, you know, is it resources or is it two people working mostly full-time for two weeks, <laughs> you know, or like no. kind of get nitty gritty about it and like really describe what is going to be needed. And then um, it just, the more, sometimes even just like describing it like to a five-year-old, like really being descriptive on um, the process, the people, the time, the sign-offs, whatever it is, it can feel silly, but is remarkably helpful because even at the most senior levels or people with decades of experience, you'd be surprised how many times everyone around the table is nodding because they think they agree, but they all have a slightly different version of what they're agreeing to in their head. And that might not be apparent, especially if you, you know, you sign off and then you check in like a month later, you find out the month later that like <laughs> yeah. the thing that was built was not what we thought we all agreed to. 
And uh, that still happens with us too. And I see why that's frustrating. It's frustrating for me, like as maybe the person who agreed to something that's not what it's built. I bet it's also frustrating to that person who built it. Definitely. have done that too. If you just like had a clear understanding. Um, so almost every organizational issue is some such some subset of a communication issue. Yeah, I've, I've seen really good engineers quit companies when they work on a thing for three months and then find out afterwards that it was different than what needed to be built. And mm-hmm. like nobody wants to burn three months of their lives on something that doesn't get implemented. It's just not it's not a fun position to be in. Agree. <laughs> yeah. Or unless, well, that's different types of mistakes. So if you burn three months and then you learned that that is a bad path to go down, that's great. For sure. But if you burn three months and then you learned that that wasn't what was intended in the first place, (laughs) that hurts, you know? (laughs) So it's, uh, yeah, you want to do, I I think the former, you want more of even, you know, you're, you're closing off paths of inquiry, but. The latter, uh, as few as possible. Yeah. Uh, the next big push that we have, really, this month in August, is we we've come to this recognition that we need to be more. Uh, we need to take performance management more seriously, mm-hmm. um, and it really is in both directions. the The thing that surprised me about this was how the I have always heard of performance management from like the top down management side of things, but the people who have been requesting us are actually the, the employees like are mm-hmm. like on the ground engineers. They want to know how they're doing. And yeah. in a lot of the, the one-on-ones I've done with people on the team, the, the problems that we need to solve are things like people want to know, are they performing? Are they advancing? Are they at risk of being fired? People want to know that. Uh, and I think that's reasonable. Especially uh, right now. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think it's also, there's a degree to which it is our responsibility uh, as leaders to set people up for success in their careers, in their career growth and help them reach their goals. Um, so uh, I have other questions around performance management, but how uh, I, it seems like, Almost everybody has their own approach to it. Uh, I just like at a high level, how, how do you approach this topic? It's so huge because it's basically performance is the entirety of the job. Um, right. I'll tell you things that we avoid. I don't like the whole company evaluating things at the same time or even whole teams. So what we try to do is spread it out throughout the year. Kind of like I said, we used to do all our Thursday updates on Thursdays and that was too much. And we yeah. spread it out. <laughs> it's kind of like what, how we've designed our internal HR systems is that um, there's not like a evaluation week or anything like that, but everyone is getting asked about one of their colleagues in some 360, like a colleague, a manager, a subordinate, periodically throughout the year on a rolling basis. So let's say, let's say Sam, you're a, a middle, a manager in the middle somewhere. Um, hopefully, I'm getting some feedback on you, like maybe like every one to three weeks from someone you work with. And so let's say you work with 10 people regularly. They might be asked, you know, uh, three to four times per year. How's Sam doing? And maybe a specific question each time, you know, like, 
how is Sam's communication style or how is Sam, uh, you know, we had the questions. I don't want to ad lib them. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Ones we've thought of and that try to be, sometimes they tie to our creed, um, which is uh, at automatic.com slash creed, which is kind of like a, mm. or, or a values thing. Um, and that, I find that really helpful as well because it also helps you catch faster if someone's struggling. That can happen for a variety of reasons, some of which the company can help with and some of which it can't, but you want to be aware of anyway. And the company can help maybe by removing some responsibilities if someone's going through a different personal, difficult personal situation or health situation or something like, you know what? If someone you love is facing a existential health crisis, guess what? You're not going to be productive. <laughs> we all know that. I mean, you could try to. By the way, you're going to try to, but it's not going to be there. So um, let's just be aware of that. And let's make sure that that is an open communication. It, you don't have to share even what it is uh, if you're not comfortable with that. Maybe with HR, but you don't have to share it with everyone if you don't want everyone asking you about it or something, but just so that there's a, a knowledge that um, uh, that's possible. Uh, as an aside, something we actually ended up with there as well is a way for people to move to um, partial time employment for partial pay. We did some experiments in the company on like four day work weeks and other things. Yeah. Honestly, um, the, we didn't stick with you. <laughs> right. I think it's there. There's obviously a divisioning margin return to work. Sure. And sometimes more work means more stuff gets done. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not like a perfect 40 hour thing. Um, yeah. I actually think most of the data indicates the opposite of that of diminishing marginal return. Uh, I think it's uh, most of the evidence that I've seen shows uh, an increased marginal rate of return after some number of hours. Like, uh, People, people who work 10% more hours, difference between 40 and 44 hours per week, make about 30% more in terms of compensation. I think uh, this is, this is maybe too in the weeds on this topic, but the, I, I think there's like a, there's a deadweight loss of communication that might be 20 or 30 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And so any time above that deadweight loss is actually very highly leveraged. And so I, I think it's actually the opposite. I will also posit that a really effective asynchronous distributed organization maybe has a smaller dead weight. Exactly. I have observed it even with myself. You know, I'm 38 now. I've gotten COVID twice. Like, I definitely feel it sometimes where I just feel a little bit slower towards the end of the day or before like I might be able to do like really great you know, nighttime coding sessions. So for myself, I've seen managing, aligning my task with my energy levels is um, is really important throughout the course of the day. In the morning, I'm really great at reading and understanding, especially long things. And towards the end of the day, I find that I can still read the long things, but I retain a lot less of it. And so I've just tried to shift that work. Like morning is when I try to like close a bunch of tabs. <laughs> I even got a tab counter thing right now on this laptop. I've got, let's see, 150 open. So <laughs> I've just, <laughs> by the way, I peaked when I started counting them at like 
I have two laptops. So I had like almost 500 per laptop. I was like, my life is a mess. I need to get everything out there. And I realized I was trying to do it at the wrong time of day. So I think there is something to that. And I also wonder like, if you're consuming things and getting more context, more is better. But there's a generative part of work that I do feel more energy kind of in the morning <laughs> uh, or when I first get up than I do um, you know, when I'm tired, however you define that. No. But, so the, but the partial work, partial day thing was just that, because um, we don't track hours, um, so I think for almost anything, maybe maybe support roles, there's there's schedules, but um so but we say like hey, if you want to move to like an 80% expectations, so you're doing about 80% of what someone working full time is doing, you can do that for 80% pay. And you can move between them, not every day, but like weekly essentially, or something like so that way some people might want to work a little less and make a little less during the summer. And that's a real freeing thing to them. And it's also really nice because they know that at any point they can turn it back up right? <laughs> 100% and they're not going to lose their job or anything like that. So that was something we introduced in COVID, particularly when people had a lot of like uh, home care or schooling or something like that. And we've kept it. It's not used a ton, but people also appreciate knowing it's there. And I have seen people also use it. We also have an unlimited AFK. So it's like, how does that interact with the like, but it's more about expectations of accomplishments. So we have an unlimited AFK and we kind of have expect what someone working full time produces in a given week, month, quarter, year, you know? Yeah. Um, so those are, uh, those are all kind of complex interplays between those mm -hmm. programs. And one of the other questions around performance management that we've been we've been struggling with, and I know our our companies share a lot of similar philosophies. So I'm I'm curious where you ended up on this. Um, we uh, on the on the concept of transparency for performance management. Um, there are we we ultimately landed for compensation that compensation data is confidential. And it's not shared. I think Buffer is one company where everyone's compensation data is public. I think there's actually a public spreadsheet and you can see it. Um, but even some of the most transparent companies like Bridgewater, uh, compensation data is confidential. Performance is another one of those uh, uh, concepts that's on a spectrum of transparency. And yeah. at Bridgewater, they have baseball cards. And like, you know where you stand and where everyone else stands and what everyone's strengths and weaknesses are. You know who the underperformers are. It's like, it's like visible to everyone at the organization. Um, and at most other companies, it is confidential. Like how you're performing is confidential. And so uh, between basically you and your manager. Um, so I'm, I'm curious where, where you ended up on this concept of performance and, and how you got there. Um, we have some areas of work where, um, the feedback loops are public. So support's a great example. Mm. You know, it's everyone can see everyone else's, how many interactions they had and the ratings of those interactions. Um, that's maybe the thing in our company that's closest to like sports and that's sure. 
the on the field <laughs> and off the field, off the field contributes to on the field and the on the field I think is pretty representative of our goals, which is like a great customer experience. So it's not perfect because sometimes people give us low ratings because they're unhappy with the product, not the support, but you know, we, we, we know that. <laughs> um, right. Almost everywhere else though, it's so fuzzy. And I think that's why a lot of companies don't have an equivalent of a Bridgewater or like a baseball card. You know, because um, the high performance is a a culmination of a thousand interactions that you have with your colleagues, with external partners, with everyone else. I'll tell you the things that are most on my mind for performance management right now. Um, one is uh, we're, we hired a lot last year, 700 people last year. Took us about 2,000. Um, like many companies, uh, we're facing some headwinds and we don't want to do layoffs. We invested a lot in hiring folks. And so we've explicitly said that, but we're not trying to grow a lot this year. <laughs> we want to maintain. Mm -hmm. Our revenue per employee is a bit low um, compared to others. And um, also, everyone who works at the company would love to make more. Like, who doesn't want to make more? But right. like, Fundamentally, <laughs> that is limited by our revenue per employee. So I think it's both good for the company and good for all the employees if we can kind of increase our revenue per person and our output. And of course, that's, you know, breaks down per role and other things. So uh, part of what we're doing as well is saying that um, if you let someone go for performance, um, that replacement hire can happen maybe even when that when the performance improvement plan or PIP starts not even at the, when the person is let go. Um, I've been working a lot to, uh, I found some areas where we've had a lot of feedback inflation. Mm, what does that mean? Where someone had like really good peer feedback. And then I was speaking to um, a leader and they were like, this person is, not even showing up for work. Like it's some baseline things were not being met. And I was like, huh. And so then I went to HR. I was like, it sounds like we should move faster to offer this person a severance. And their response to me was, but wait, we just gave them a raise. Wow. <laughs> feedback. And I was like, wow, the company has utterly failed at this. You know, because no. what makes signals? By the way, it's not fair to that person at all. For sure. Um, and... Uh, so just at every level, there was a failure there. So we have to go and look at the positive feedback they were getting. When was it? Was there some inflation there? What are the incentives? Are people like just giving everyone positive feedback because there's no skin off their back if they do? Right. So how does it reflect back on them, <laughs> their performance, that they gave positive feedback to someone who wasn't actually doing that well? Yeah. Uh, so you kind of have to work your way through the whole web of interactions there. And uh, that's something we're doing. And the final thing that's on my mind a lot is areas where the entire team is rated as doing well, but we're not meeting our business objectives. So how can we have a high performing individuals on a low performing team? Right. Theoretically possible, but especially over the long term, you have to at some point redefine performance for accomplishing those goals. <laughs> like it's great that everyone's working hard, communicating great, like a model, uh, colleague in so many ways, but if we're not working on the right things, we should, you know, take a step back and and readdress. 
And part of what we're doing there is some in some places in the company, again, we're 2,000 people, we're pretty big. We're taking entire teams and uh, just saying, let's work on something else. You know, and then that allows us to see, like, <laughs> or we just work on the wrong thing, uh, which is my, actually what I think it was, or we worked on a problem the wrong way. Maybe we got too stuck in, like, a certain path. Sure. And so let's work on something just totally different and see how this group of people who already know each other really well, who are already really well aligned, who like have it, they're, they're very talented, um, can apply themselves to a brand new problem. And uh, it kind of sucks because, like, your identity is, like, attached to this thing you've been working on. But I hope that it also uh, reveals where the problem is or if there's some other hidden performance issues on the team. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, those are some interesting things for us to think about. Those are, I can, I can see how we could run into those at some point in the, in the near future. Um, on, on the transparency side, let's say you have the, you say I have a, a a team that seems to be doing well, but they're not hitting their goals. Um, how I'm, I'm reminded of a podcast that I have with Mark Randall, uh, from Netflix. And he says that, uh, he had this line that's really stuck with me, which is that people, people notice what you tolerate. And if you, if you tolerate poor performance, oftentimes many people on the team know this before you do. And it's really demoralizing when you're working really hard, but the people around you are not performing. And it, it's not, it's not a super strong motivator to perform yourself when you notice that the company tolerates people who don't really show up. And, um, where I've struggled with this is that the one version of the culture is you, uh, you hold these people up as examples and you shame them. <laughs> And when you fire them, and that seems like a very bad way to go about it. Um, but the alternative is these people just sort of leave and nobody, nobody knows what the performance yeah. expectation is. And so I, I don't see a good solution here on how you handle that. I don't know a good solution either. Um, okay. Quickly do not publicly comment when someone's let go for performance. In fact, we allow people to do their own goodbye posts and things. And, and um, yeah, and that's just kind of like respect and dignity, I think is important on the way in and out for folks. Um, hopefully the ones on their team realize that the immediate team and your whole company is probably small enough that maybe that's most of the company will realize. Um, but you don't have to be mean about it or public about it. We occasionally will um, post to the whole company about something. Um, usually without, we're doing it right now. We just did one a few days ago. We let someone go because of expenses. Just to, you know, so to me, when uh, it's an opportunity to both just really restate that that's not okay. This person had actually doctored some expense things, which to me is like very clearly like almost fraud or malfeasance. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a no brainer. Um, and, uh, also reaffirm our culture of trust. Like we're not changing our policies because of this, but we're going to remind everyone this isn't okay. And, um, you know, it's a trust and verify <laughs> this. And this okay. is how, this is what happened. We, you know, finance raised that this was unusual. HR looked into it. 
and then we let this person go immediately. Just so folks know that like, um, as well, because we have had it before, the same thing you said with performance. If you see someone ordering something really, really expensive at dinner, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'm gonna get the burger, and they're getting, you know, the porterhouse or like some a $200 meal or something on the company dime. Like that also can be corrosive for trying to save the company money. Mm-hmm. And so I think those things are are important. Also things that everyone in the company can set an example of, particularly managers. Yeah. You know, if we're ever at a restaurant, I'm, I'm very conscious of what I order, the price of what I order. I know, I don't even know if someone, anyone knows this, but I think they do. Yeah. Um, and if we're going to celebrate something or like entertain a client or something, let's be very explicit about that. Right. Hey, this client is paying us $4 million a year. We're going to take them out and we're going to let them, we're going to order the nicest wine on the menu for them. <laughs> like, you know, we're going to say that beforehand. It's not going to be an on the fly thing or something. We're all going to know this is going to happen. And we're all going to really enjoy that right. as like a celebration. Um, so those are important too, but just like, you know, casually or on the fly, not premeditated, I think that that can uh, send the wrong message. Yeah, for sure. We're very, very frugal on expenses, and it's so hard to maintain that frugality as you grow. And um, I actually really appreciate this kind of like economic turbulence is kind of the third we've been through in the history of our company. And every time we've gone through it, it's made our company so much better. Mm. As much as I can say, Hey, we need to be efficient. We need to be frugal. We need to be all these things. When you're hiring 700 people in a year, <laughs> yeah, you know, you definitely you you pick up some extra um, in terms of processes and efficiency and everything like that, and and perhaps tolerating some low performance in areas you just aren't noticing or, or didn't pay attention to. So um, times like this are really really good to just loop back, and it's something I'm doing with all of our teams now. Is just going through. Kind of every project and saying like, hey, is this uh, contributing to growth or revenue? Uh, sorry, yeah, engagement or revenue? Uh, or is this like paying down technical debt or maintenance and something we need to do continuously? If it doesn't fall into one of those three buckets and we should have a certain proportion of each, let's, let's re-examine it. All right. Yeah, we've, we've hired 30 people in the last year and that's uh, that's been its own set of struggles. I can't imagine 700. <laughs> One of the other questions, uh, this is something that we have hired relatively senior to date, I think much more so than is typical for a company at our stage. Um, and so things like uh, mentorship and personal growth has not been as much of a priority. Um, but as, as we've continued to get bigger, and hired more people who are maybe earlier on in their careers, we're starting to notice that uh, basically we we can't assume that everybody is a self-driven autodidact anymore. Mm. And we're, we're struggling to figure out mentorship just tactically seems a lot easier in a co-located team. You're physically next to the person, they can shadow you, uh, but not, not even when I say more junior people, but it's like people who are not very senior in their careers need some guidance and mentorship. And we we haven't really been able to do that. And I don't think that we have a, a good process for that. So I'm curious if that's something you've thought about and how you achieved that. We've tried to break that up into a few different things. So um, we have a coaching program. 
So people can get reimbursed for um, coaching. Uh, we actually, at this point, have like, I think, 30 coaches that are kind of like pre-approved. We have a contract yeah. with them, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to get coaching, like you sign up, you, you need to do this like month-long course, essentially. That's a self-starter thing. And then once you complete that, you can interview a couple of coaches, pick your favorite one, and that's all reimbursed. It's very expensive. Like these coaches are typically a couple hundred dollars per hour. But I think it's one of the best investments we make because they're all familiar with automatic because they work with other people. So they kind of know our weirdness and our quirks and everything versus a one-off. I think there's an advantage to a coach working with several people in a company. And they're totally outside of the management structure. So these folks are just for you. They don't determine your performance. They don't give feedback on your conversation. They're just like, so I think it's even better than a manager. And um, and if they're good, hopefully they're good. We, we do two-way ratings on them and we try to get rid of the coaches that get low ratings or show up late to meetings or something like that. Um, they're going to push you and you can bring your problems to them and, and they'll, like any good coach. By the way, every great performer you see in the world works with coaches. Right. LeBron James has like, eight coaches. He's like a coach for everything. <laughs> Not literally like a pinky toe coach, but I'm sure some equivalent where there's like something, maybe like a fast twitch coach or something, yeah. you know? Um, that's awesome. And then on the other side of that, um, I find meetups really important. So getting people together in person, especially now that that's much more possible than ever, is a worthwhile investment. And even as, you know, one of our, so our e-commerce business um, we saw e-commerce payments slow down a lot this year. I think just as stuff started to shift from online to offline yeah. um, and maybe broader macroeconomic trends. So that was like, a, I think that's coming in like $30 million of revenue below plan. Um, so of course we looked at all of our budgets. And the one thing that we were like, we're not gonna touch is our meetup budget. One, because by the way, we saved a ton of money during COVID by not doing it. Uh, we were about 10 million a year pre-COVID. And uh, two, I just feel, especially in a, a situation where perhaps half the company has not been to a meetup before, especially at the start of the year, it's just a really great investment for people to get together. And um, it's also okay for this to be informal. It could just be two people getting together for a couple days. It could be just a co-working situation. You can definitely do it virtually with like, some screen sharing and everything. And you should do that too, especially for new people who might not be able to travel. But um, to the extent you're able to get people together in person a few times a year, it is invaluable.